That's James Brown with Marva Whitney on her 1969 album, It's Your Thing. Welcome to The Working Class on Hearing Voices from NPR. I'm Barrett Golding. Every year around Labor Day, we take a look at some of the things we do for a living. Let's kick off our workday with some exercise for existential employees. Here's Rebecca Flowers. Picture yourself in your office. Imagine the hardness of your chair as it pinches a nerve in your hip. Feel the harsh fluorescent light burning into the backs of your eyes. Feel the stress bunching up around your neck and shoulders. Focus on your tension, the telephone, your email, your day timer, and the paperwork that human resources needed this morning all at the same time. Think of all the work you will do in exchange for your tiny paycheck. Listen to the sound of your boss chewing you out as you fail to complete your assigned tasks. Understand that you are inconsequential. Stretch your arms out to greet the enormous expanse of the company you work for and celebrate your anonymity as a mere cog in the vast machine. Now, let's close our practice by embracing the notion that you are easily replaced. Imagine that one day you didn't show up for work and were soon replaced by someone who looks and talks just like you and wears the same size shoe. Breathe. My name is Pasquale Spensieri, and I'm a sissy sharpener, a knife sharpener. This is my truck. This is my office. This is my workplace. When I hear the bell, sometimes they get confused. One time an old lady came to me and says, give me a chocolate. I says, no, I don't sell ice cream here. You got the wrong truck. We're on New York Avenue and 52nd Street. This is a fabric store. We go see my customer. Come on in. How are you? Okay. How's it? Need any scissors shopping for me? I do, but I don't know where my scissors are. Come on. We got to do some work over here. <laughs> yeah, okay, here. Give it to me. Hey, look, what happened to this scissor? Uh, this you can't close no more. You see, you see the plastic. Throw it away. Throw it away. All right. I'll be right back. Now we have uh, two, four, five pairs of scissors we gotta do. We gotta go to work. Knives are much easier than scissors. It's a knife, it's straight. It's easy. Scissors, uh, it's not so easy. You gotta know what you're doing. Some people that think this is a very low-class business. 
that you go around and ask people, like, you know, you're a low class or something. That's what makes you feel better sometimes. But me, I got my own here. I could do whatever I want. You know, I did this all my life and I still like to do. I enjoy the sharpening the scissors. I'm attached to the grindstone. <laughs> okay. Very good. See, sometimes if you do too fast, they think you didn't do a good job. So that's why it says, <laughs> sometimes I sit down and sit down with my newspaper. Just take a couple of minutes more and you go back. Okay, lady. Says it ready. Great, great. Oh. Okay, I'll see you next time. Oh, Bye. Okay, well, that's one stop. Keep moving. You can't stay in one place. <laughs> father used to do this business, my uncle. They started 1930, depression time, 30 or 31, I don't know. But they used to walk in the street, looking for work. They used to go around with the little, with the little thing on the shoulder, a little thing with a stone on. Then they used to have a little bell in the hand, ding, 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 ding. They used to go around and scream, knife shop, and scissor shop, and arrotino, arrotino, arrotino. Arutino means a grinder. That was a tough job. Now I got to be a grinder myself. Oh, what a noisy city, huh? We're in Brooklyn, 47th Street now, and that's Borough Park. Yo, how are you? I know a lot of people. Borough Park is mine. I used to go to all the way downtown Brooklyn, Flushing Avenue, all the way on the other side. There used to be a lot of shops down there, the factories. I used to stop in one, one, one building, I stay all day. I used to go to a place that was 300 people over there. Everyone, each one had a scissors. Pick them up and shop and bring them back. There was plenty of work for everybody. Today it's different. You don't even see a grind anymore. It's finished. Open the door, Moshi. Hey, look who's here. Good morning, Blitz. Hey, I thought you only worked for me. I just come in. You need anything? I'd yeah, I might as well see here already. All right. Back to normal? Yeah, pretty good. Not too bad, but uh, I had a cramps in my hands all day. But whatever. Let's go. I got to go to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Good luck. Take, Take care. Take care. Nice Take seeing you. Bye-bye. I'm 70 years old. I can't work no more like I used to do. I used to work 12 hours a day. You know, nobody wants to stop. Sometimes you want to you work until you die. Otherwise, it dull up. My brains, it get dull. <laughs> it's not easy. Like the winter time, you get, you're cold in and out. The summer is hot in here. That's my trade. I pass my life on the truck. I'm a grinder. Finito. Pasquale Spensieri, Grinder. Produced by Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries and Emily Botin of WNYC. From the series New York Works, audio portraits of a vanishing city at radiodiaries.org. This is The Working Class on Hearing Voices. The music, Hard Work, by John Handy. Since the 1880s, members of the Mohawk Nation have been skilled iron workers. They helped build Manhattan skyscrapers, the Empire State Building, the Twin Towers. For the Kitchen Sisters Sonic Memorial Project, producer Jamie York went up to the two Mohawk reservations on the Canada-New York border and came back with this story, Walking High Steel. What? 
It's three right now outside our studios. That's the way it's going to be for the next couple of days or so. Don't forget Radio Bingo tonight. Ten thousand. Canoona, they get in the Twin Towers. The Twin Towers, the Twins, the Nika, the Chamog. I'm a Burke clan, huh? We go clan. Bill O'Hara Oaks from Akrizasne. Yeah, when I work in a World Trade Center, that was the year of 69. I was working up in New Jersey. You can see it from there, the tower was going up. They told me it's going to go up to 110 floors, huh? I said, I want to get on that building. Saturday night, 8 o'clock. The Gunnawaga Mohawk Senior Lacrosse team get back in action once again. Walter Bova, here in the Gunnawaga Indian Reserve. 99% of the reservation are iron workers. My brother was, and my whole family was at one time. One of the elders takes you under their wing, and you, know, you got to learn how to crawl before you can walk. My name is Pete LaFleur, and I worked in the World Trade Center in 1969 and 70. I was a connector of steel. My mother's brother was a great iron worker. My grandfather worked on the Empire State Building. He worked in Brazil, he worked in France, San Francisco Bay Bridge. Weekends when they came home, he sat around the family, and that's all they all talked about. It's all you heard, all your life. When you started working yourself, you could almost do the job because you, you were talking so much about it when you were a kid. My name is Randy Horn. I've been an iron worker for 33 years. The Trade Center was the most time I ever spent with my father, one-on-one. I never really knew him. He was always away providing for his family. I learned to know him on the job. My father put me in the gang, start bolting up right away. I was on the North Tower. North Tower started first. I was a pusher, a foreman. It's like a band leader. What pieces go where, A, B, C, and so forth. I'll forget I was on that job, what, uh, about 10 years, and came back and put up the antenna. I had my son with me, and it was one of his first jobs. And up about three-quarters of the way up the antenna is a catwalk. So I got my son over there. He was Everything was all right. Everything was foggy. All of a sudden, a damn fog lift. And I was, now he's looking down, he sees cars about this big. <laughs> I know one thing, that building on a good windy day, when you come off that thing, you feel like a drunken sailor. The height didn't even bother me at the time. I could go uh, 120 at the time. You think twice now when you're walking on the steel. Walking on the steel with the wind, if you get some gusses, it could throw you right off. And all of a sudden the wind uh, peaks up and uh, you just try to balance yourself. You would have to jump from the top of the beam and into the bottom of the beam and grab the top and hold on. They call it coon. You got to coon it. All of a sudden, the wind gets you, then you jump, and you crouch down and you grab the, the flanges of the beam so you won't fall off. Then when the wind dies down, you get back up and keep going. I was daring, and that's a daring job. Because when you're walking a girder, the wind is blowing, say, from the... Uh, north. Now you're leaning into it. All of a sudden the wind stops you keep on going. Could you imagine? You're in a new space in New York City. You're kind of in this air that nobody's ever been there before. On the B Tower, we were losing time. $50 extra a week just to uh, stay up there. We have to bring our own sandwiches. We used to carry our own tents with us. Lean-tos, whatever we needed. And our own heaters in the winter. My name is Brad Bonaparte. I'm an iron worker working in Manhattan. It's just like a ballet. We've got these two guys on the bottom. The rig comes down, they put the chokers on, boom, the piece goes up. They spin it just the right way through the air. One guy catches it, he swings the other end into you, and you spud your end. Me and Andy work together a lot. We know each other's thinking and even living together. <laughs> we don't see each other on the weekends, thank God. Come Friday afternoon at work, psh, adios. See you Sunday. My name is Rosie. I have five children. I married into uh, an ironworker family. Out of the 42 years, we lived together as husband and wife for only 10. 
The rest of the time he was always gone. Economics drives guys to do it. It's the best pain of all the trades. You know, it's been our culture for 120-some years. During wars, during hunting and trapping, there's always times when men left. The women were the ones taking care of the community. They always have, and they still do. Iron workers are hopeless for uh, doing things around the house, taking care of the bills, taking care of the kids, making the car payments. Uh, my husband never didn't even know how to write a check because he was never here to do it. I took care of everything. If there was work here, you take it. My name is Peter Stacy. You don't want to leave your family. Everything that, that goes with home, You're sleeping in your own bed, getting to cut your grass, your friends, sit on your porch, relax, go up to the quarry, go for a swim. You drive down the road, people smile and say, hello, hello. It's uh, home. In this house on Sunday, I generally cook. I'll make something that the boys will uh, like, like this week, and I'll make them cornbread and steak. And they'll eat, and then they'll go to sleep around uh, 7 o'clock. I kiss him goodbye when he goes down, and then he'll wake up around midnight. I don't even notice, and he's gone. A lot of times it's really quiet in the car. I know how I am on Sunday afternoon. Uh, you get lonesome before you even leave. Sometimes you're, you're home and you just have a fight because it's hard, you're leaving again. These are the same arguments that have been going on for generations. My mother, my father, my grandparents, they all had these same problems. You know, the guys are leaving on Sunday night and they won't be back till Friday night. It's a five-hour drive. When you travel with other guys, yeah, there's four of you in the car. Coming home on a Friday is enjoyable. The stories are good all the way home. When you're going back Sunday night at midnight, you guys get in the car and they go to sleep, and that's it, and you wake up in Brooklyn. When we get off the subway in Brooklyn on Atlantic Avenue, there's about four bars you can go to as you're walking to where uh, you live. You got Harlem. Then you got Little Italy, and then you had Brooklyn. State and Nevins, and it was about a four to six block square area. All of us stayed there. About every fourth door that you walk by is going to be uh, somebody from Kanawagi. Country boys, eh? You're going to get into the big city there, eh? <laughs> there was 200 iron workers from Kanawagi in New York City working on different jobs. And every night when you finish work, everybody met at different bars for a couple of beers and talked about their job and... Everybody wanted to be the best gang in New York City. There's none of the, none of the native people here. Everyone had finished second. Some jobs that were on was all Mohawk. So everybody spoke Mohawk and uh, the gang. It's nice to hear the, the old-timers talk and they're laughing, you know. Myself, I don't speak it too good. Everybody was uh, so worried about the white society, you know. They would talk English all the time after a while, you know. One day, the government will come up to you and say, nobody speaks Mohawk no more. You are not Indians no more. That's what my mother told me. My name is Kyle Bove, and I've been an iron worker for 21 years. When I talk to people that aren't iron workers, and you tell them you're Indian or Mohawk, and they say, oh, you're the Mohawks, you're the people that aren't afraid of heights. When I go up, I'm afraid of falling, but it's just that we deal with the height better. If a man falls to his death... You leave the job for the day, more often than not, you go sit in a bar and everybody's very quiet. You have a couple of beers, nobody jokes around, there's no laughing. The next day, you go to work, everybody's overcautious. It wasn't your time to go, but it brings back a very harsh reality of ironwork. As you come into the eastern side of the community, there's a steel cross there that they put up for the memory of the men that fell on the Quebec Bridge. 1907. The men were all working there when it fell. 33 men from the community um, lost their lives. The women got together and told the men that they never want a large group of men to work together on the same job in case a disaster happens like that again. But the men do it today anyway. K103, It's eight after nine o'clock. Dave Lahash is the news. He's got some uh, very big information for you. Two planes have crashed into the World Trade Towers. Uh, we do have some Ganawagirono in New York. We're going to be trying to get in touch with them as soon as possible. Of course, they're working iron up there. Please give us a call here at the radio station, 638-1313. We've got about 10 rigs here. 
maybe 200 iron workers right now. It's still on fire right now. The first day I walked into Ground Zero, it was such an emotional event for all of us iron workers all going in there together. Fire engines all over the place, all the buildings are all smashed all the way around it. Mountains and mountains of twisted iron and steel everywhere. So unpredictable. You know, you have to get this piece out of the way so the firemen can come underneath and, and do their job. When I seen that antenna go down on the North Tower, my heart just sank with it. You know? I worked on that building, and I explained to my son that I was down there, and uh, I don't know, there's just an emptiness when he went down. When we found it, we were pulling these other pieces of iron off, and we looked, we're like, wow, what is that? It looks like a rocket. It was the antenna. When I finally did get to go home after working on it, I was, you know, I had a pregnant woman, had a beautiful baby, and her name is Yananawi. Yananawi means she guards the corn, and it's a clan name. She's the only one with it, and she's growing leaps and bounds. So that's a good thing to see that life. Before I went home on the weekend, when I got time off, you just wash with like a tobacco water to cleanse yourself. We probably all have parts of, you know, all those people inside of our systems. I think that's part of everybody's responsibility that was there, is that we all carry some of those people in us. Walking High Steel was produced by Jamie York and the Kitchen Sisters, mixed by Jim McKee of Earwax Productions. It's on the CD Lost and Found Sound and Beyond part of the Sonic Memorial Project at kitchensisters.org. You're listening to The Working Class. Coming up, what happens when there is no work, anywhere. That's in a minute on Hearing Voices. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. These are four postal workers canceling stamps at the University of Ghana Post Office. Welcome back to the working class on Hearing Voices. just a cab driver. I had like 800 jobs. I'm Egyptian-American and African. I work in construction, work at Burger King, I work in uh, McDonald's. I tried everything. In 1979, I went to Europe. I was in Germany. I was working a travel agent you know, a specialist for the Middle East between Jordan and Cairo in Egypt. 
And in 1986, the Vice President Helmut Kohl, he signed a law to replace all the foreigners in Germany and everybody to go out. I went back home to Cairo. I love always to be a free bird. We talked to my friends and I about the United States of America. I've been told not to come here because it's too far away. The people that were watching, like Dallas, the big tall buildings, good cash, but they never show what is the problems here. They think the only thing people hear is rich, nothing else. Nothing but rich people. I was surprised when I came and see it here. I went down to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I work in construction, I work at Burger King, I work in uh, McDonald's, Taco Bell. I did everything. I had like 800 jobs. I never felt shame. They fired me twice from Burger King and <laughs> can talk about the chicken because I can treat the monitor. I understand people, but I can treat, you know. I was carpenter helper, a roofer helper, electrician, and what else? Foundation layers. I was down in the hall for maybe 20 feet. I work as a trash collector. I did everything. That's what is good about this country. You can do anything, even if you are rich or poor. I moved around a lot. You know, the funny thing, I went to New Mexico. My cousin and I, we had an interview for a dishwasher. The guy said to me, we need somebody who got five years experience with washing dishes. <laughs> I look at him and I say, excuse me. He said to me, we need at least five years experience. I said to him, okay, no problem. Let me go back to Europe, get experience, and come back to you. <laughs> that was a surprise to me. <laughs> I'm just a cab driver. Sometimes you find yourself with a customer that are good to me. And sometimes people, like, they want to show you how tough they are. Don't mess with them. I love this job, and I love to serve the public. And you know what? It's not only about money. Nasser Al-Gabrai and his 800 jobs. Recorded by Judith Sloan and Warren Lair, with music by Scott Johnson, part of their book CD project, Crossing the Boulevard. What happens when there are no jobs? Well, people move to try and find work. During the Great Depression, a lot of people moved, many to California. That's where the Library of Congress sent Charles Todd and Robert Sonkin to talk to the migrants. They lugged a 50-pound portable recorder. They recorded music. They recorded stories. These are the voices of the Dust Bowl, narrated by Charles Todd. Oh, she's all right. Uh-uh, that's too big for you, isn't it? All right, we're all, we're all here in the uh, recreation hall at the Shafter camp, and we're going to get together and sing a song just to test out this machine. The recordings were made in the summer of 1940 in California. We went from Visalia in the north all the way down to Brawley in the south. There were 12 of these huge camps out there, and we went to all of them. Migratory labor camps, sponsored by the Farm Security Administration, one of Mr. Roosevelt's many organizations that got us through the Depression. Well, the migration began as a result of the terrible dust storms that hit the uh, 
Oklahoma and Arkansas and the panhandle of Texas back in around 1936 and 37. And it caused what was became known as the Dust Bowl. It come a, what we call a red dust storm. It's come from the west, tore the roofs off of the larger buildings, the small buildings, blowed them completely away and turned cars over. And the dust was so thick that you could see nothing at all, just dark as it could possibly be. Such a huge black cloud just looked like smoke out of a train stack or something. And uh, we had to tie wet rags over our mouth just to keep them smothering. And we had cattle. It killed them. They was out in there. And uh, we uh, would cut their lungs open and it looked just like a mud pack or something. Five or six hundred chickens, they all starved to death, or a large percent of them. Two or three cows starved to death. So I told the folks in the spring, I says, the way everything's turned out, and money's so hard to get. I says, I guess we'll just load up and leave out. I've just worried my head off for the last five or six years trying to make everything meet, and I'm getting tired of the worry. One down the road feeling bad. I'm going down the road feeling bad. I'm going down the road feeling bad. Oh, Lord, and ain't gonna be treated this were mostly people of English, Irish, and Scotch descent who came over here generations ago. And uh, when the Dust Bowl came, the people in California, the farmers out there, began to send bulletins saying that there were a lot of jobs in California, pea picking, grape picking, so forth. As a result, 300,000 came instead of what they were hoping for, about 2,000 or so. But California got a little petrified and scared to death with this huge influx of migrants coming in. It was far more than they could use or take. When I left Oklahoma, I was walking, me and my wife and two babies. We come into Texas and we made we got us an old rattletrap car. Of course, we didn't have the money to just say, well, let's buy a ticket and we'll go to California. So we had to work our way. So from Dallas, Texas, we went on out to Clovis, New Mexico. I loaded up my personal belongings into a little house trailer that I bought, 15 foot long, 7 foot wide, hooked it on behind the Model A Ford, and we started to Yakima, Washington. While traveling through the country and going over the mountains at Grand Island, Nebraska, our house trailer came unhooked, went over a mountainside and destroyed practically everything that we had except our model A Ford. Next morning, I says to the wife, we've got 52 cents. We've got to get out and get us a job. Wife and I and boy loaded in our personal belongings and drove for eight continual hours, stopping at every ranch, hunting for something to do. We went run onto a rancher who wanted someone to spray. My boy and I had never sprayed an apple tree in our life and never knew anything about it, but he was man enough to offer us a job at 30 cents an hour, moved us into a little cabin which you could throw a cat through the roof. The stove was just about ready to fall down, the cook stove. We moved into it and slept on the floor, wife and I and boy, for a week while we sprayed to get enough money so that we could live decently. We sprayed there for 18 weeks and my rheumatism got so bad that the doctor advised me that I'd better come to California or else go back home and get ready to die. If I never get to see you again Good Lord, remember me. Started this point in 1939, May the 4th, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and started in California. In that dear state of Oklahoma, in the city where buildings are high, I laid on my pillow so hopeless, looking through my tin shack at the sky. I got up early next morning, out in the cold I did creep, 
walked off without any breakfast and left two hungry babies asleep. And then I left that big city. I walked down 60 Highway. I had a good reason for leaving, so I headed for Pacific Bay. Then I seen the Texas Cotton and the Mexico Bottomless Lakes and the Arizona Healy Monster and the Big Diamond Rattlesnakes. One night I heard the little coyotes. I listened to their pitiful whine. I wondered if the poor little creatures didn't have hungry babies like mine. I started this poem on the desert, my bed lying out on the ground, then covered up my hungry babies and smoked a cigarette and laid down. Then I picked peas in California from two to six hampers a day, trying to make a few pennies to drive that old hungry away. Oklahoma, farewell. Stopped off in New Mexico and worked for the snow range. Hit cotton for 75 cents a hundred. Most of the Mexicans and the contractors beat you out of little cotton you'd pick, so we started on for Arizona. The living condition in Arizona is mighty bad for a worker on a farm. Where you sleep on the ground, you know, they, uh, we're just treated as mules and hardly as good as mules because they, uh, they think a whole lot of the mules. And... Then we come on over in California in 38. And at uh, that time, came quite a flood here in California. And we landed on Point Conception, Fortress Point West, picking peas. And people was just about to starve to death and no way to get any groceries. And uh, people would go down to the preacher and the preacher had a mother who had some money, and she wired it in to him. And he would uh, take six shooters, old tires, anything and you could pawn for a little money to buy groceries with. And that went on for two or three weeks, till the peas got ready to pick, and got dry enough to pick, and the people went out and they never cleared any money, just enough to barely get away from there. And then we went on up north to Winters, California, and picked uh, almonds, peaches, pears, In the beginning, before the government put in the Farm Security Administration migrant camps, before that they went in what they called the ditch bank camps, which were just tents that had been put up by the farmers in the ditch banks. They were a lot of malnutrition. The kids, little toe-headed kids, were in pretty bad shape with pellagra and other diseases, malnourishment mostly. Great many of the people died from asthma and other lung diseases, and they were in terrible shape when they arrived in California, most of them. But let to me, oh kids, I came out here one day. Spent all my money getting here, now I can't get away. It was uh, all a big emergency situation, and the Farm Security Administration just had to build these camps. People were suffering in California. It rained me all night long, boys thought we all would drown. They put in 12 of them uh, in California, and each one took about 2,000 or 3,000 people. Now listen to me, kids, I'll hand it to you straight. I came out here eight weeks ago, and I haven't worked a day. But now I'm on relief, boys, I guess I've done my best. It wasn't for old Uncle Sam, I guess we starved to death. This is a song that was composed the 1939 Arvin Cotton Strike, three strikers composed this song, including myself. The title is Associated Farmers Have a Farm. Associated Farmers Have a Farm, E-I-E-I-O. They had a group known as the Associated Farmers. They were convinced that this was a communist plot. Let me read you just one thing that was said that I took down verbatim. The whole proposition is communist through and through. It stinks of Russia. Our women won't be safe on the streets with these people. We never wanted this camp in here. White men are no good in our business. We like our Mexicans. They don't complain. And they don't ever do any organizing. As for those bulletins which they said we sent out to get those migrants here, they're the work of the Communist Party. We've checked on it. The Reds are burrowing from within. You know how they work. I picked that up from a mayor of one of the towns down in Brawley, California, down in Imperial Valley. 
I went and called on him to get his reactions, and he was pretty angry about everything. They were angry at me, too. I was asking too many questions. <laughs> in those ranches, it got to be that if we talked back or even sang in the orchards or talked, you know, with somebody else picking around there, both would come up to us and tell us, you better shut up, you're not supposed to sing or you're not supposed to whistle, you're not supposed to do anything, like peons. That's what uh, gets all the people here all bothered because right now they have work. Most of them have work, but they haven't got any, any money to rent a house with. And the first money they start earning, they have to pay it for food. So how do you expect them to pay rent? This is Mary Campbell. This is Betty Campbell. We're from the Shafter Government Camp. We're going to sing the Government Camp song. Written by us. Written. It was written by my sister and I. Over here in the government camp, that's where we get our government stamps. Over in that little rag house home, over in the isolation, that's where we get our vaccinations. Over in that little rag house home. And the, the government camps that we live in, that the government has never spent a dollar that's done people more good than these government camps. Not even money that's been loaned to railroads and big corporations. I don't think it's it's helped the country anymore. It's put more enjoyment in life for people in these here country camps. It's pitiful the way we see some people come in here in the wintertime, have nothing, just sleep on the floors. Just floor. And maybe if you, well, if they had some of them that had a car, they'd get the cushions out of their cars and lay down on them. Because the tents would uh, leak and the water would run in, so they'd get themselves off of the floor and try to keep dry in that way. And then we had a lot of sickness, and the ones that were on the sick committee, like myself, I was on the sick committee, we'd uh, make the uh, rounds every morning in each unit, and uh, if there was anyone that needed uh, medical care, they were turned in at the clinic, at the nurse. So everything fared well. We've lost only a very few cases. Everything was taken care of very nicely. They began as just tent camps, then metal shelters and you would get a family of seven or eight people in one room metal shack. But they, were, they had excellent recreation facilities and a big hall for entertainment and even had a library. And when I was doing my recordings, each camp had its own little newspaper put out by the Okies. The music is running by the King Family Orchestra that played with the Grace of Wrath moving pictures. These folks are nationally known in all the camps the King family, yes, the King family was uh, the nearest thing to a professional group the Okies had, and we found them in one of the camps. They did a lot of very strange variations on 200-year-old ballads. Folks, this is the King family playing on some instruments that we made ourselves out of some gourds, like we might call them soap gourds or powder gourds or whatever the old-time gourds might have been. So we have some instruments, Harlan playing the guitar, Charles playing the mandolin, Sid playing a violin, and the tenor banjo myself, Billy playing the bass violin. So here we go with the gourds. The camp manager would get on the loudspeaker and announce that there'd be an event in the social hall that night. They were going to record some music and play some music and so forth. Saturday nights was a terrific night. They had a huge dance and line dancing and square dance and a very good band orchestra made up by the Okies themselves and it was usually fiddle and guitar and banjo and mouth organs but it was just old time country music.
The name of this song is Cotton Fever. It was written by an Arvin camper during last season's cotton. It was a presto machine called a presto recorder. Along the road on either, the road on either side, cotton's green, two miles wide. And it was a very cumbersome thing, and about 50 pounds or so. And it had aluminum discs covered with acetate. We had records that were acetate on cardboard, too. And we would always, after we recorded somebody on regular records, we would do one on cardboard that they could play themselves and keep. So that helped. And we had them fighting to be heard. Had no trouble getting them to record at all. And they loved looking at the machine. The kids were absolutely, unbelievably excited about it. This one's a frog. It was a very primitive outfit. Sometimes it would stick, get stuck. It would do all kinds of strange things. And uh, it was just like a regular Victrola. You put the disc down, the big recording, it looked just like a phonograph record, put it on the uh, machine, turned the machine on, the record went around, and the needle cut the grooves in the recording, and it made the recording. There was no tape at all. Barbara Ellen. All in the merry month of May When the green buds lay Swelling young Jimmy Gray on his deathbed lay for the love of Barbara Ellen. And as I was walking through the Wookie camp, I heard a woman singing and I recognized what she was singing. It was an old 17th century ballad called Barbara Allen. And uh, I asked where she had learned that. She said from her mother. If your name be Barbara Allen. And I began to ask around about it, and I found that dozens of people who knew these old songs that were hundred more years old. Oh, the old apple tree in the orchard, it lives in my memory. Cause it reminds me of my pappy. He was handsome, young, and happy when he planted the old apple tree. So one day Pappy took Widow Norton out on a jamboree And when he brought her home at sun up, Brother Norton raised his gun up And he chased Pappy up in the tree And the fact that we were working for the government, the Library of Congress, uh, we sort of hinted to the Okies that uh, whoever we were recording that probably a good many people in Washington, D.C. would hear the stories that they told and hear their music and so forth and it might be helpful to the Okies. And so the Okies sang like the devil and did a lot of uh, telling of stories. When the neighbors came after my pappy up in the tree was he The neighbors took a rope and strung him by the neck and then they hung him to a branch on the old apple tree. Where'd you learn that one? In Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, we did play these records, all of them, for Mrs. Roosevelt uh, at the White House. We were invited there and uh, played them, so I haven't felt guilty about all that. Uh, This is an old song that I learned from my daddy. Little old man come in from the plow, dandy. They're very good, and that uh, woman, uh, Mrs. Pike, the one who sang Dan Do, that was a lovely voice. Little old man come in from the plow, said old woman got dinner ready now, and bleared and bleared and blaggadaggo. I was amazed at the number of good guitar players. Practically everyone we ran into had a guitar stashed away somewhere. Peace old dry bread laying on the shelf. Tommy Clash, Tom Klingo, peace old dry 
bed laying on the shelf. If you want any dinner, you can cook it yourself. Yes, it was. Uh, I, I remember it all very well, and it was very uh, moving business, the whole thing. Over at the sewing room, in each woman and a broom, over by the little rag over where we cook and can, we hope someday we'll get a man over in that little rag we are proud of government camp. That's where we get our government stamps over by that little rag house home. That's fine. <laughs> Charles Todd and the Voices of the Dust Bowl. He made those recordings in 1940 for the Library of Congress. I spoke with him in 2000 for this program. He died in 2004. I'm Barrett Golding speaking to you from Peak Recording in Bozeman, Montana. There's links to everything you heard in this hour at hearingvoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is HearingVoices.com.